This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In his Chronicle of the English Kings, written in the 12th century, the historian William of Malmesbury says of one monarch, the firm opinion among the English remains that no one more just or more learned ever governed the kingdom. This paragon of royal virtue is King Athelstan, who reigned for 14 years during the first half of the 10th century. Much less well-known today than his grandfather, Alfred the Great, Athelstan was the first king to rule a united England. He was also a successful and ruthless military commander, an international diplomat and a legal reformer. He collected books and holy relics and strengthened the institutions of church and state. Athelstan made such an impact during his short reign that one chronicler described him on his death as a pillar of the dignity of the Western world. With me to discuss the life and achievements of King Athelstan are Sarah Foote, Regius Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Christ Church, Oxford, John Hines, Professor of Archaeology at Cardiff University, and Richard Gameson, Professor of the History of the Book at Durham University. John Hines, before we discuss Athelstan himself, let's talk a bit about the England he was born into during the late 9th century. What sort of a place was it? Who ruled it? What was going on? Well, according to William of Malmesbury, Athelstan was um, 30 years old when he came to the rule, came to the throne in 924, which means that he was born late in the reign of his grandfather, King Alfred, uh, extremely important king. I think one could easily argue one of the most important kings of the whole uh, Anglo-Saxon period. Um, Athelstan would probably just remember the death of that grandfather, and so he would have a knowledge of the ninth century as a period of tremendous change but it would be a knowledge that that sort of memory one gets from childhood and one relies on other people to explain to you uh, what it actually meant. Uh, England at the end of the ninth century was vastly different from England at the beginning of the ninth century and that was simply a result of the tremendous impact of the Viking invasions and attacks um, upon the the, the whole area where at the start of the century there had been three major kingdoms, Mercia, Wessex and Northumbria, by the end of it only the kingdom of Wessex remained, there had been tremendous disruption in the church within England and it also appears um, a serious economic uh, downturn at the time we see the old Old towns that used to be in England at, to up to the end of the 8th century simply disappear from the archaeological record by the end of the 9th century. What this really meant for Athelstan is that he grew up in a period in which reconstruction was taking place. He simply wouldn't in his life have been looking back on the ruins of, of, a, of a lost civilization, as it were, or of, of, of a ruined state. Um, on the contrary, um, he was um, being brought up in the period when his own father, Alfred's successor, King Edward the Elder, uh, was very successfully um, reconquering the Danelaw, extending the rule of the West the Saxon. The Danelaw being the line across what is now 
England, where the Norwegians stayed to the east of it, the Vikings stayed to the east yeah, of that's it. That's right. Yes. And the English under Alfred stayed to the west of it, by and large. As, essentially, it's if you could take a diagonal line, more or less, from R- London up to the Liverpool Manchester area, that'll give you a pretty good idea of of where that was. And on the uh, the northern and the eastern side of that, it was the area of the Dane law. Um, it was essentially under Scandinavian rule there. And Edward Edward Re- was reconquered that area very successfully. Um, in doing so, um, he introduced some very important further developments, such as the establishment of towns, military strongholds, many of which did turn into significant market towns in the near future. Briefly, there's, a, there's a, been a bit of confusion about Athelstan's mother. Yes. Edward the Elder had three wives yes. in succession, and ten children, but what about his mother? Can you just tell us what the problem was, if there was a problem? We don't really know. We're relying on what William of Malmesbury tells us in the 12th century, and he gives us a really rather romantic um, story about her. Um, certainly Edward, yes, he was a sort of serial monogamist rather than a polygamist, as, as earlier kings would have died along the way, you can't you say that as if there's something... Well, <laughs> well we're, 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 we're told that they, that they didn't and that, oh, they, that they were put aside. They were effectively um, defor- divorced. Um, Athelstan's mother is named as Edwin. She's the sort of the first wife or consort of Edward and what appears that because Edward's dis- succession to the to the to the kingship in Wessex had to be fought for had to be it was disputed and ha- had to be achieved it looks as if he put that wife aside in order to marry um, a woman called Alfled, who was the daughter of one of the leading noblemen in Wessex in order to gain the recognition on the throne Sarah, what uh, we are talking about a period where accounts are, uh, are difficult to come by. Um, just kicking off that, just starting there. John was talking about William Malmesbury, so we're talking two centuries later, and people are very worried about that. Although he may have had sources now lost to us, which may have been contemporaneous with Athelstan. Nevertheless, we're talking about what evidence can we rely on? Can you give us some sort of idea of the landscape of the evidence for Athelstan? In comparison with the reign of Alfred, we've got much less evidence. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the year-by-year account of events in Wessex and further afield, only contains six entries relating to this reign, not all of which even refer to the king. If you want a coherent narrative account of what happened during his reign, then you do indeed have to turn to the 12th century historian William of Malmesbury, who seems to have had an especial interest in Athelstan, who was buried at the Abbey of Malmesbury. William may have had access to sources which are now lost. He seems to give the impression that he was working on an old text, which he found partway through the writing of his account of Avalstan's life, and what he found in that text caused him then to revisit it. He says it was written in a very bombastic language. It was quite difficult to understand. It's possible we should identify that text with a now-lost manuscript, which used to be in the Monastery of Glastonbury, which was called The Wars of King Athelstan. And it's possible also that that work was in verse and in prose, as William seems to refer to verse and prose aspects. As far as sources surviving from Athelstan's reign itself, um, we've got a lot of material that refers to his administrative and, and governmental work. He wrote several law codes or several law codes are issued in his reign. There are documents relating to grants of of land and privilege. There's a large quantity of coins which tell us about the ways in which he wanted to project his own kingship. 
he was a substantial collector of manuscripts and some of those manuscripts contain images um, of the king himself and also inscriptions recording his, his donation. So we're building up a picture from sources from within his reign, from accounts elsewhere in continental Europe in the same period and then from narratives by post-conquest historians. Can I just take you, <coughs> can I just take you up on the accounts from continental Europe in the same period? He was written about <coughs> in Latin and in Norse, wasn't he? Yes, he w- he was. Um, there, there's an account of the deeds of Otto the Great of Saxony by um, a nun at um, Gandersheim called Hrotsvita, um, which refers at some length to Adelstan as, as a great king among the English when discussing the fact that one of his sisters married Otto the Great. Um, and he's also um, mentioned... Um, at substantial length in Ailes' saga, where we have an account of a battle which might be the key battle of Adelstan's reign. Can you give us some idea of how he became king? Adelstan must have spent part of his childhood, we believe, in, in Mercia um, in, during the early years of the 10th century after his father had remarried and um, his second wife had sons of her own, didn't want the eldest son around. Um, and it seems that when Edward the Elder died in 924, Adelstan was actually on the northwestern border of his father's kingdom in, in Cheshire with his father. That's where his father died. But his next eldest brother, whose name was Alfweard, was in Winchester. And it seems that the two groups of leading men in Winchester and Mercia both elected themselves a king. So the West Saxons to- chose Alfweard and the Mercians chose Adelstan. And we might have seen Alfred's united realm then divided and have two separate kingdoms again, were it not that, perhaps conveniently for our narrative, Alfweard died within a month of his father, and by the end of the following year, Adelstan had succeeded in taking direct control over Wessex as well. Is farm play suspected about that convenient death? There's absolutely no evidence to suggest that there was. William of Malmesbury does suggest that Adelstan had a part to play in the death of his next youngest brother, whose name was Edwin, um, whom he ordered to be exiled and caused to be shipwrecked at sea. But Alfweard, no, I think um, he died. So, Richard Gameson, we've got, we've got him as king there. What were the principal challenges facing him? His father, Edward the Elder, who's made these incursions into Dane law on the back of what his father, Alfred the Great, had held, uh, has left him... A difficult uh, heritage, really, Indeed. because his, the, the kingdom is extending way beyond Winchester, um, and the Vikings are keeping... They're not going to go away. Mm. They go a little bit, then they come back again. And it's continuing Vikings. This is a disunited England. The certain Scottish uh, persons are, are coming in on the side of the Scandinavians. The Welsh are causing trouble. And so so what, what does he face, this king? There are three main types of problems that Athelstan faces, and one of them we've already been introduced to, i.e., is he going to be recognised in all of English, Anglo-Saxon England? We've seen that there might have been problems in his recognition at Wessex, and for the first year or so, this seems to have been an issue. We have a charter issued <coughs> issued in 925, and that alludes... A charter being what, exactly? A charter, a grant, a confirmation of land or land holding to other people in the kingdom, and this alludes to the fact that his kingdom is troubled, and it refers to him as only as King of Mercia. So that's the first aspect to the problem. William of Malmesbury later alludes to the fact that there may even have been an attempt to blind, or a plan, a plot, to blind Athelstan 
um, in Wessex, suggesting a lack of um, support for him. And it's striking... I mean, literally the blind, physically the blind. That would be the assumption, and that right. would um, obviously st- strikingly weaken his case for any sort of kingship and disempower him. And this is alluded to um, by William of Malmesbury, suggesting dissatisfaction with his case in Wessex. And finally, if we look at the, bi- the Bishop of Winchester, we discover that he's absent from Athelstan's coronation when, when it happens and doesn't attest the earliest charters, again suggesting resistance in Wessex. So that's the first problem on his, you know, front, on his, in his own kingdom, as it to were. To sort of recapture his home base. To ensure his security at home. A second problem is the one that you alluded to, that England and, the Brit- and Britain as a whole is a series of different kingdoms and nations, and Athelstan has to make a strong kingdom within. Well, there are the Cornish, there are the Welsh, there are the Cumbrians, the Scots, the Northumbrians, based around Bambra, and then, of course, the Viking kingdom based around York, and these are all potentially hostile areas to him. And overarching this, there's the third issue of how do you make an Anglo-Saxon kingdom function in these difficult circumstances. What were a king's powers in those days, Richard, for listeners? What did he do? He, did he lead from the front in battle? Did he call all the shots? Were the people who could question his decisions? We can, by the time Athelstan comes to the throne, as we've heard, he's 30, so he's quite well experienced in the means of government and power and control. And with this very difficult situation, we can see him responding over the next two to three years. We can't instantly see what did he do the moment he picked, you know, he came to the throne, but we can see the, the mechanisms he can use to try to deal with these sort of situations. And although we itemise the problem separately... The ways of dealing with them are interrelated. Strong military leadership, successful defence of your borders, be it diplomatically or by military leadership, will tend to strengthen your case at home. Equally, strong government within your kingdom will um, empower you to war against your neighbours. And we see Athelstan operating in all these ways. So, for instance, in 926, um, there is a treaty between him and the king of York, Citric. When Citric dies the very next year, there is some sabre-rattling and Athelstan imposes himself in the north and there's a a treaty that establishes peace between him, the Northumbrians and the Scots. And around the same time, a similar agreement on the borders um, with Wales. So within a few years, because of one assumes shows of military strength, he's managed to create some sort of stable political regime. That's the external sort of power. Internally, we know that at a fairly early stage, he issues a law code, a major law code at Greatly, some point between 926 and 930. And this shows us the king's power in operation. The various provisions include things that relate specifically to military matters, the the type of shield covering, how you will muster your army, ensuring that people attend assemblies, assuring that that the burrs, the fortified towns, remain fortified. They were started by his grandfather, Alfred. That's right, and then built up... Little towns which were... Everybody was within a full day, you tell me. A day's march. The idea is that everyone within the kingdom will be within a day's march of a fortified town, which can both function as a defensive centre, but can also be a trading centre. And Athelstan is clear that these are to be maintained on an annual basis. Equally, in order to strengthen the kingdom, the same law code shows us that he is trying to control coinage and so the economy and trying to ensure loyalty, going back to the original um, 
question of how does he create this um, kingdom, that treason is particularly to be outlawed and punished. And finally, he has a stroke of luck that in 926, um, as part of a, an attempt to get one of his sisters in marriage for, a, for the Duke of Neustria in northern France, presents are made to him. And these include some that are highly resonant and symbolic of power because he gets the sword of Constantine and the lance of Charlemagne, which show that he's considered seriously and give him a symbolism of a European ruler. Let's, thank you very much. John Hines, let's turn to the, the warrior side of him and mm. see if, how many aspects we can cover in this programme. He's established, <coughs> as uh, has been pointed out by Richard, he's established his authority by going northward. What sort of forces are involved in the battle? And I repeat a sort of rather uh, sort of boy's own question. Did he lead from the front, as, as his grandfather did, Alfred did? And Alfred at Eddington was about 4,000 people, <coughs> weren't there? So what numbers are involved and what's going on when he's going to conquer uh, Northumbria? What does he do? Well, uh, certainly a West Saxon army at this time could number could put troops in the field numbering thousands. So uh, Alfred was facing such a dreadful threat. There were times when he would turn out every single man that he could from certain very large areas of his kingdom. And so the, the campaigns that um, Adelstan would be leading um, up into the north were probably different um, in structure. Um, Have we any idea of numbers? Sorry to be. Uh, no, we we haven't got ideas of number. What we can what we can talk about is the is is the structure in so far as we're told that on the, particularly he led a a major campaign up into the north into the year uh, um, 934. We we actually don't know a great deal about what happened uh, back in 926, which was when he first managed to assert his control um, over Northumbria. We're simply told that um, the king to whom, King Sigtrig of Northumbria, the Viking king up there to whom he had married his sister, conveniently died after a year. He saw an opportunity there that rather than recognising Olaf Sigtrig as the king there, he moved in, took it over, and we're talked about. We, we, we're told of a meeting in which uh, northern kings, the English king of Northumbria up at Bamburgh, the Scots king, and so on, came to a meeting with him and um, uh, accepted him as their overlord. So that Is could that- have been a bloodless coup. He might just have, have marched north with a show of force behind him. There isn't Indeed. any evidence that right. that any blood was when shed. When we come to the 934... Can I come to the 934 in a moment, yeah. really? But it, when he did that first thing in the north, was that when he laid waste to York, sir? Um, laid waste to the city? No, I don't... Well, we're told that he pulled down... We're told that he pulled Actually, one down of a, a, fo- a fortress that had been uh, right. a stronghold that had been uh, constructed by the Danes. In, and, in, and in order it. to ensure that the Danes were, were permanently removed from power. But there, there doesn't seem to be any, any evidence of, of fighting. It's more the no. assertion of the no. West Saxon will, more, saying this is... And more, more of this is, is, is in the 934 campaign. Is it the 934 is, or 937? Are you talking about Brunanborough? No, that's, no. that's 937 there. Three, right. three campaigns. Well, let's uh, briskly 934. Let's get to the big one. First of all, was 934 very significant? Can't yes, say he yes, won there and it, we move it, on. It, it was in terms of the structure of the army, insofar as we know he was supported by Welsh kings um, on this. He didn't just take the West Saxon army, it was, if you like, a federation army of himself and his sub-kings um, that he could take up there. And in fact it's extremely well recorded for us because we have a, a series of documents and charters that were being issued in that year. We can trace his progress up to the north. We know which leading 
subordinates he had with him who were also witnessing the charters as we went up there. Remarkable detail for that. I'm going to come to Sarah because I want to move on to this big battle. Back to you in a moment, Richard. Uh, in 937-ish. We have to say ish for some of these dates, don't we? I'd be happy with 937. Yeah, I'd be very happy with 937. Yes. Yes. Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records oh, really? this, the oh, most well, celebrated I'm, battle of his reign in a long poem. I'm very pleased to hear it. I will delete the question mark I put beside 937. At a place called Brunanborough. Now, that was much reported on, and that was supposed to be the Great War. It was reported was, in was remembered afterwards. Yes. Um, so like what happened there, and why was it great? The... Peace treaty that, that Adelstan had made with his with the people of Northumbria and also the kings of, of Scotland and Strathclyde the, and the kings of the Welsh in 97 had had wobbled in 934, as we saw on his Scottish expedition, but that was so convincing a victory by land and by sea. He took a naval force with him also and ravaged as far north as Caithness. And he took the, the son of the King of the Co Scots, Constantine, as a hostage back to Wessex with him. So I think he thought that that was the end of, of the Northern Rebellion. But only three years later after that, they combined their forces again with the Norse king in Dublin, Olaf Guthrithson. So this is the most serious military threat to have been faced by Wessex for some time. A combined army of Scots, Strathclyde, um, the King of Gwynedd gathered probably in Cheshire on the Wirral Peninsula. The most likely identification of, of the battle site is Bromborough in Cheshire, from which we would get the Old English name, which is where the Old English name Brunnenborough comes. This combined force was ravaging already in southern Northumbria, the, the, the north of Wessex, uh, the north of Mercia, and, and Adelstan took a, his army from the south and a Mercian army too and met them at this place on the Wirral. And the battle is so significant that it's reported in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle under that year, not in prose, but for the first time in the Chronicle, in verse. So what actually happened on the battlefield, it's very hard to tell because we have this, this fictionalised verse account. The forces met one another, they fought all day and until the sun had gone out of the sky, and at the end of the day, five kings lay dead on the battlefield. The son of the King of the Scots was killed, and the Norse, with their tails between their legs, their legs ran as fast as they could back to their, their little boats and rowed back out to sea in order to get on their bigger ocean-going ships and, and sail back to Dublin. This was unquestionably, as the chronicler says, never since the Angles and Saxons first came to these shores has a greater victory been won by the sword's edge. So 500 years before. He related it to, to, to about 500 AD, did he? Yes. Yes. Richard, can you tell us a little bit more in detail about this? But I'm sorry to go on. I'd like to know what happened. It said one of the phrases that by the edge of sword, the biggest battle won by the edge of the sword. So what actually happened? Well, if only we could answer that question. As Sarah said, the problem is our principal near contemporary account um, is a highly stylized poem. And everything is described in formulaic heroic terms that if one were to read certain passages, say, from Beowulf, and change a few of the names, that would do for the Battle of Brunnenburg. So in terms of the, the cut and thrust of campaign, we simply don't have that sort of information. On the other hand, in terms of can we see Athelstan thinking tactically, well, perhaps we can, um, because we know that he had, as we've already heard, 
he had planned the move, you know, towards it. He's got his troops with him. And even in the 980s, it is still remembered as the Great War. We have a translation of the chronicle into Latin um, by a chronicler known as Athelweird, sending it to Germany, so it had to be in Latin rather than in Old English. And he acknowledges it as the Great War that lives on in people's memory at that stage. John, do you want to add to this? Um, I think... uh, Useful thing to add, too, is the fact that this battle is so well remembered in Scandinavian sources as well. It's not known by the same name. They give it... Uh, the, the, the battlefield is there called Vinhavy, um, and we can't really explain how that um, shift of name has taken place, whether it's just having parallel English and Norse names for more or less the same area. Um, but it clearly did have a very big impact on the Norse historical imagination, just indeed at a time when a lot of Norse literary traditions were 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 in in a in a state of formation they were coming together and so it would uh, go in there very clearly in the absence of a very clear account a historical account that they can refer back to we do find in this 13th century icelandic saga ale saga um, that we get a very detailed story of what is supposed to have um, happened at, at the battle the significant point of which i would draw out of which is the fact that athelstan had Scandinavians fighting on his side too. It would be very easy to see this as a battle between Athelstan and the English and uh, a rainbow coalition of all the other um, national groups who were present in um, Britain at that time. It wasn't. It was a battle for power between different kings and you brought in what forces you could. We've got a Norse poem as well celebrating Athelstan's victory. But this was a sort of break point, wasn't it, really, in his reign? He was now in command of what we can now call England. Uh, they either He was their over-king or he was the, the, the direct king and the Welsh and the Scots were onside enough. Can we talk about his other interests abroad now, Sarah Ford? Because he was, he was a, a Europe, let's call it Europe, was a, he used his sisters part, as much as anything else to, to make alliances both inside these islands and across the, across the sea in the continent. Yes, um, Adelston is one of the few Anglo-Saxon kings who might genuinely be thought to have pursued a European foreign policy. He had, you've already mentioned, this large number of sisters, and he chose strategically to get them married across the main royal and ducal courts of Western Europe, many of which were in a state of flux, a period of the... um, collapse of Carolingian power, rise of the Ottonians um, in, in Saxony. He did this strategically so that it didn't matter who won, whoever won would have been his brother-in-law or their children would have been his nephews. So one of his sisters is married to the Carolingian king Charles the Simple, um, in fact by, by Edward the Elder, and um, their son Louis is put back on the French throne um, by um, an, an armed force um, led by um, representatives of Adelstan in the mid-930s. One of his sisters, Edith, marries Otto, the Duke of, of Saxony. Um, that Otto might be allowed to choose which beautiful West Saxon princess he would marry. Two of Adelstan's sisters were sent over, and Otto, um, we know from that life by Hrotsvita, Otto, of course, fell in love immediately with Edith, who was more beautiful than any princess in, in the West, but her sister, who was probably um, also a fairly attractive um, marriageable proposition, is married to the brother of the Duke of Burgundy, um, 
And one of them also, as Richard mentioned, married um, Hugh, Duke of the Franks. So here he is with these, this network of sisters and increasingly nephews across Western Europe. And also he fosters the sons of other European powers at his own court. So he fostered Håkon, the son of the king um, of, of, of Norway, um, and um, the, the future heir to the Carolingian throne, Louis, and also a prince from Brittany. Yes, uh, in fact, his relationships with um, the Norwegian king were, were clearly Im- important too. Again, we can pick these up from both Scandinavian and from um, English sources. Um, the William of Malmesbury, for instance, tells us that he received a gift from Harold, king of Norway. This must have been Harold Fairhair, as, he, as he's known to tradition, sent him a splendid ship uh, with shields on it. Now, interestingly, in the, the account that William gives, it sounds as if this is Harold Harold um, doing a great honour um, to Athelstan from the Norwegian point of view. If somebody accepted a gift from you, they became tied to you, they became obliged to, to you. Um, and both Harold in Norway and Athelstan in England, this I think is the key point, had a real interest in controlling the much more anarchic Vikings that there were in the Northern Isles, the Western Isles, and in Dublin. This is an alliance to restrict the Viking threat. And can, you be, can you say something briefly, Richard, because I want to ask you a yes. question, but and I know an- you want to say something. And another area which hasn't been drawn into this that clearly features also in Athelstan's thinking is Brittany. Brittany itself was suffering from the Vikings who were overrunning it in the 910s, conquering it in principle in 919, and we see exiles from Brittany being supported and fostered at Atherston's court as well, and equally monks, individual scholars, fleeing to England and bringing resources with them, seeing him as a very favourable and supportive environment. He must have been thought a good bet for everybody who wanted to marry, to marry into his family then. I mean, is that... Well... Because um, he was doing this, but they must have thought, well, it's worth our while. It is for all sorts of reasons. One, it does reflect probably his personal status, but secondly, and perhaps more importantly, it reflects the fact that he is the oldest royal stock that is available at the time in question. Much of Europe has been having a similar situation to England, the power, older power structures crumbling, new dukes coming to the fore, and within that context, a marriage into the House of Wessex gave you bluer blood than you could get elsewhere. Can we move to the law now, John? Um, we could stay with war for a long time, and let's go from war, war to law, law. He issued at least six legal codes during his reign, um, some of them rather surprising. Can you just give us a brief view of the principal aims that he had with these legal codes? Yes, they're relatively easy to summarise. He does make legislation for religious observance. This was important both because large areas of his kingdom were converting from the Norse traditional religion, we should call it, um, to Christianity, Um, but also because all kings wanted to make sure that the church was acting in a regular way. He also issues provisions that the administration of his kingdom through regular meetings and um, the administration of a sort of criminal law um, would be um, done on a very regular basis so people would know exactly how things um, ought to operate so that if if he issues laws, he's going to know that they actually get 
yet put into effect. Um, particularly interesting is the quantity of legislation that he issues dealing both with what we could call crime, especially thieving, um, and then in relation to trading, very detailed provisions for how coins are to be issued, um, a very clear rule that any large transaction, one worth more than five shillings, in effect, must take place in a town, and no trading on a Sunday. Mm. Sarah, can I ask you about this attitude to crime? Take on from what, uh, what jo- John has said, particularly to theft. How does that differ from what had gone before? Um, it's important to remember that Adelstein is ruling a larger realm than anybody else has done. And I think one of the underlying principles of, of his legislation is the attempt to try and unite that whole realm together under the same law and to deal with problems that might be thought to, to cause the united realm to to start to separate. His anxiety is articulated always in terms of theft. There are more references to thieving in his law than in the whole of the rest of the Anglo-Saxon corpus. But I think for for Adelstein, theft is simply acting as a metaphor for a wider problem, which is breach of the peace, and especially breach of the peace by powerful local kindreds who are doing their own thing rather than obeying the royal fiat. And he sees breach of the peace and failure to obey him as a breach of the oath that they've all taken to him as king, and therefore theft becomes, in effect, disloyalty to his person as king. Is it true that he introduced imprisonment, Richard? Um, not, not that he introduced it as such. Um, we, can't, we can't see it in a, particular, in a particular form, but he is more generous to certain younger criminals than some of his predecessors were who autom- who he allows that if you're under 12 and you thieve you need not necessarily be executed so there are op- there are a range of options that you can have to that and equally even crimes like treachery yes um um there are, you can be executed, but there's going to be an ordeal first. And in addition to that, we find outlawing as the preferable solution rather than imprisonment. What does outlawing mean at that time? It means that you're going to be removed from the kingdom. And he has structures supposedly in, in place in order to ensure this happens. And that there are regular monthly meetings supposed to be of the Reeves who are responsible for implementing um, the laws who are supposed to see this sort of thing is happening. But we know because of the regularity with which these things are underlined that there were always difficulties, particularly with the more powerful elements. But if I could make one other point about his administration, is that actually he is the first king under whom we can see a royal administration as such, as opposed to borrowing monks from monasteries to do his paperwork for him. Actually, we know that he had his own secretariat, and his charters are issued by one scribe, and this itself is a small but significant move forward in central control. What strikes me about what the three of you have been saying is that he came to the throne about the age of 30, he died at 45, he packed an immense amount in, didn't he? We immense amount. You're talking about wars inside these islands with very difficult people. You're talking about extending his rule, extending alliances all over the continent. You're talking about legal systems, administrative systems, minting things, minting his own coins, building up these boroughs as fortified and so on. And yet, having done all that, what he's best remembered for is this being a, a man of great piety. He never married. May, may well, you don't know, according to your notes, you don't know, may well have taken a vow <laughs> of celibacy, or that might have been tactical. Uh, and he's a very pious man, collected relics, donated relics, especially to Malmesbury. So can you talk as a, take, tell us a little about that, please, John? I think what it comes to altogether 
is that he had an extremely clear idea of what a king should be, and he was attempting to create precisely that sort of figure of kingship within himself and of, that of christian kingship of of, of, of christian kingships uh, certainly although it didn't um prevent him from having uh, strong diplomatic relations with with non-christian kings uh, when it suited him but that 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 was purely pragmatic he he couldn't convert um, Norway, but he could bring up the king of Norway's son as a as a Christian, and Haakon was known as returning to uh, to to Norway as a Christian. So that that's really what I, what I think the whole thing amounts to. It's that desire to present himself um, as a a new style of king. And one way he presented himself, Seraphut, was to actually have himself um, painted, drawn, and he, there was this figure, there was this man with a crown on, and uh, went round. Yes, I, I think it is important to observe that Athelstan is the first Anglo-Saxon king to choose to wear a crown and not a helmet as a symbol of his royal power. And when he, when he finally is crowned in September 924, so more than a year after his father died, he is crowned. A crown is put on his head and a scepter in his hand, not a helmet and a sword. And two portraits, at least, were painted in his lifetime showing him wearing this crown. A very simple gold band with, with stalks sticking out, vertical stalks with little circular spheres on the end of them. In both these manuscripts, one of which the image is now lost, but we have a, a surviving a description of it, in both of them he was presenting a book to the Shrine of St Cuthbert, which had moved from Lindisfarne to Chesterley Street. In the one that survives, he is standing, holding an open book in front of him, as if he's reading it, following the precepts of his grandfather that a good king should also be a wise and learned king, and giving this king to the saint who's standing inside the doorway of his shrine. Giving this book to the Give, saint. Giving the book to the saint. Yeah. In, in the one, the picture that's lost, he kneels in front of the saint and hands the book over, still wearing his crown and clutching his scepter in the other hand. And in the lost picture, the saint who was sitting um, and has his hand raised That's to bless the king. Thank you very much, John. I don't, think, from, I, I don't think he is blessing him there. It's, 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 it's extremely different to, difficult to, to put this without sounding ridiculous, but actually the sign of blessing is, is a two-fingered gesture. <laughs> um, in, in the Middle Ages, it's done with two fingers raised Closed up and fingers, two yes. turned back. In fact, like we the, see the Cuthbert's whole hand and this is a sign of showing actually Cuthbert is displaying the king in that image he's not blessing him the key thing here in a way it goes back to the concepts of kingship that effective Christianity defends effective kingship and Bede had pointed out the Christian kings prosper Charlemagne had had this view Alfred saw pushing back the Vikings and supporting religion as part and parcel so Bede, the venerable Bede was an influence on Athelstan you think? ultimately yes, I think that's been. the case yeah. um, by this time the Bede has been translated into Old English and the presentation of manuscripts and other gifts to the shrine of St Cuthbert on his expedition in 934 is a key gesture before fighting a great battle and equally we see him sending manuscripts around his kingdom to other centres and relics, it's practical spirituality that he's distributing Cuthbert was the nearest we had to a patron saint at that time, a Indeed. Indeed. Or national Indeed. patron saint yes. Yes. Well, but he, did, he attracted people from for, uh, further away than Northumbria he did he, you, yes. you say for Northumbria effectively as if nobody outside the boundaries of Northumberland knew who Cuthbert was. I thought well, he was well-known all over. Yes, certainly he was. Through, through the works of Bede, he was extreme, yes, extremely well-known. Well but, but nevertheless, as a patron saint, he particularly represented particularly Northumbria. Northumbria. Yes, yeah. The general yes. patron saint would probably be seen as Gregory the Great and that yes. Cuthbert would probably be 
second to Gregory the Great. Though I think part of the the visit to the shrine in Northumbria is to try and appropriate Cuthbert and make him a saint for all of the English and not just a local Northumbrian saint anymore. And interestingly, whereas most of the manuscripts that Athelstan presented he had got himself, they'd been given to him by from the continent. The one of one of the two that he presented the shrine of St Cuthbert at Chesterley Street. It was the one that we know was written for him in England, somewhere in the south of England. So he created this enormous England, as it were, in a very short time, and then he died. And briefly, then what? Starting with you, John. Well, in some ways, if we thought that the measure of Athelstan's success would be what sort of stable state with expanded boundaries he left behind him, it would appear to be a complete failure because within a year or two, his successor, Edmund, a half-brother, has lost nearly all of it. Even the Danelaw area, the the Midlands that Edward had conquered, had had gone away. But the simple fact was that, that Edmund had to re-establish his power in exactly the same way as Athelstan had done, exactly the same way as uh, Edward had done um, before him. And um, by the end of Edward's reign, he has got more or less the same amount of power. Certainly there's then a few rather weak um, kings, short reigns, and it's then King Edgar later on in the 10th century who really consolidates that single kingdom of England. Sarah, what about the idea of a Christian king? The idea of that being an all-England king had been established. The idea of an all-England Christian king, was that also established? Yes, I, th- I think that, that Adelstan ha- has managed to do that in the ways in which um, he has him self-described in in his own documents and he does see himself as king not just of the English but also of all of Britain. His coins where he depicts himself also wearing a crown, he describes himself as King Totius Britanniae and this too is an attempt to assert a Christian authority over all the surrounding peoples regardless of their faith but presenting the opportunity of course for further conversion work among them. But he's remembered a contemporary um, poem starts with, with the the line Rex Pius Adelstan Pius, King Adelstan celebrated for military might, but also for being the most Christian king. And um, Athelstan's reputation remained strong for quite a long time. In the late 10th century, he's flagged by um, one of the great homilists of the day as one of the great kings of the 10th century. In the 12th century, as we've already heard, chroniclers write him up in golden terms. Even if we move into the Tudor period, a foreign writer, Polydore Virgil, writing in 1534, gives Athelstan a very good write-up, sees him in much the same terms as we've presented him today, and almost simultaneously, interestingly, Tyndale claims that he he has seen an old chronicle that showed that Athelstan had actually um, sponsored the translation of works into Old English. Um, Including the Bible. Including the Bible. And even if it isn't true, it shows that Athelstan was... was a, was, a, was a plausible name. Well, you can't doubt Tyndall. I mean, On the other hand, by the time we get to the 19th century, even while academic historians like the great Freeman still write him up, he's rather f- sort of fallen from popular view. And good evidence of this is that we know the historical subjects that were shown at the Royal Academy, and we don't get one depiction of Athelstan at the Royal Academy from the 18th or early 19th century. It's got to be three sentences. I'm awfully sorry, John. Sir Frank Stenton in the middle of the 20th century said of Athelstan that he was one English king of whom we felt we knew some sort of personality. So he thought positively of him. I don't think so. There's just a figure there, a politicised figure. Next week we'll be going even earlier to the first century AD with Pliny the Elder, the first great encyclopaedia ever attempted. Thank you for listening.
We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.